Hello, hey. All right, I think it's time to get started. <clears throat> Everybody hear me? All right, very good. All right. Well, good morning and welcome back to Sunday School. The title of our lesson today is The Gospel is Good News. <clears throat> we are talking about the gospel. What is what is the main message of the Bible and what is the life-giving news of the Bible? Now, we're going to do something a little special today. We're going to multitask. They say humans have a hard time multitasking. We're going to attempt some multitasking because we want to accomplish a number of goals at the same time with today's lesson. I'll put these on a slide here. We want to, first of all, summarize the flow of human history using the Bible. We're going to articulate the message that all men need to believe in order to be saved. And we're going to begin to show how the, all, how the whole Bible is about Jesus Christ. And this is all going to tie together as we discuss this subject of the gospel. Now, I'm confident that we can complete these goals, these goals, but I do need you to stay on your toes today. Uh, we have a lot to talk about. We have a, I have a lot I would like to share with you. So please give me your utmost attention as we look at this most critical aspect of the Christian faith. What is the gospel and why is it good news? We're going to walk through an explanation of that. Now, let's pray before we continue. Our Lord and God, I pray that you'd make this time profitable, that it would be a time where those who are saved can revel in your gospel. Those who are not saved would be exposed to the gospel so that they would believe it. And God, that you'd also equip your people to be able to, to declare the gospel more accurately, more helpfully, more sufficiently. I pray that you'd uh, be so gracious as to build up your people now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, when we ask the question, what is the gospel? We can answer that question in a very expansive way or in a very simple and basic way. In terms of giving the gospel to somebody, declaring the gospel to somebody, that can look a little different based on how much that person already knows and where you are in your relationship or conversation with them. If someone has a background in the Bible, the gospel can be reduced to one or two sentences. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 5, we see the gospel in brief. Listen as I read these five verses. They're there on the screen for you. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 5. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Now I'm going to stop our reading there. If you, are, if you look at the passage, you'll know that there's a little bit more about Christ's other appearances in the preceding verses, but these five verses will do for our, uh, for our purposes right now. Notice the four pieces of information that Paul gives concerning the gospel in these verses. Paul declares Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ was buried. Christ was raised according to the scriptures on the third day. And Christ appeared to his brethren. These are perhaps the most basic gospel elements. And they all appear in one sentence. At least in the English version. But would this one sentence be a sufficient gospel declaration and explanation for your average co-worker or classmate? Probably not. And why not? What do you think? They're not familiar with the scriptures. And because they don't know the scriptures, these words don't have the proper context for them. They may not understand why what you're saying matters to them, because they don't think of themselves as sinners. Maybe they don't even know what sin is. Maybe they not, don't even believe that the Bible is true. So when you say, according to the scriptures, that has no significance to them. You're going to have to give more context. You're going to have to explain more the terms that, are relate, or the terms that appear even in this biblical sentence. As I say, in this... In these verses, we see the phrase, according to the scriptures. A person needs to be aware of the scriptural context of this summary statement to see why the gospel is so important 
to them. By the way, the Greek word for gospel, you may know, is euangelion, from which we get the word evangelism and evangelical. Euangelion literally means good news or good message. So the gospel is the good news. But why is the good news of the gospel good? We wouldn't tell people we've got some good news, but why is it good? Well, let me ask you, what makes it so good? I mean, it sounds pretty positive all by itself, but the real reason why the good news are good is because there already is some bad news. That's what makes the good news so good. It's because there's some bad news that it overturns. And this is, this is a critical point for our appreciation of and declaration of the gospel. Before one can understand and welcome the good news of salvation, he must see the peril that he is in before God. For the good news to be truly good, someone has to understand the bad news first. In other words, a person needs the context, as, I, as we've been saying, needs the context of the rest of the Bible to appreciate what Jesus has done. You cannot simply share 1 Corinthians 15, 3-5, or even John 3, 16 with someone, probably because they don't have this context. I mean, you should share those verses, but you're going to have to do a little bit more explanation than that, on average. So what other explanation do you need to do? What else exactly does a person need to know? beyond this summary statement here in 1 Corinthians 15. Well, there are a number of evangelistic methods designed to communicate the bad news and the good news. But one method, and again, this is not the only method, one simple and logical method that we can use is to basically walk somebody through the chronology of the Bible. Walk somebody through what are the main events that happen in the Bible. And so for our, for our class, we're going to talk about using the seven C's of history as an outline for sharing the gospel. What are the seven C's of history, you might be asking? Well, no, it has nothing to do with oceans or being a pirate. This is a chronological outline of the most major events of the Bible, all alliterated with the letter C. And this is something Answers in Genesis has come up with. Of course, it's not inspired, but it's a useful template. We can use the Bible's own chronological outline as a simple way to present the gospel. And that's what I want to do with you. That's why I say we're multitasking today. We're going to walk through the seven seas of history with an eye to the bad news and the good news of the gospel. So let's begin. We start with our first C, creation. Our first C is creation. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be flipping to a number of passages today, so get those fingers limbered up. Genesis 1 verses 31. To two, chapter two, verse four. We won't be doing the kind of analysis that we usually do in each one of these passages, but I want to read them to you as they have to do with each one of these chronological points in history. So that the first is creation, and we'll start reading in Genesis one, starting in verse thirty-one. God saw all that He had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it, he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that Yahweh God made earth and heaven. So, to explain these verses, God is the creator, and he created a perfect universe without sin, corruption, suffering, or death. The first humans, Adam and Eve, they lived in unpolluted, harmonious relationship with God and with each other. These humans were given jurisdiction over the earth to rule it, to cultivate it, and to multiply upon it, but they received one prohibition. They could not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, why? Why was the fruit forbidden? Well, we're not told exactly. As the creator, God has the right to set the rules his creation should follow. And we know from the rest of scripture that God's rules, God's laws, they are all good. There's nothing arbitrary about them. 
So this prohibition in the garden was good as well in some way. One way to think about why, why it was good, one way of understanding it, is that God gave Adam and Eve an opportunity to enjoy him, honor him, glorify him by obeying this simple command. Adam and Eve could not only enjoy God by ruling and cultivating the earth, just as he commanded, but also by not eating the fruit of this one tree. In the same way, God's, all of God's commands are given to us, Adam and Eve's descendants, for our good and for our happiness. But we, like our forefather Adam, choose so frequently to forgo the joy of obedience to God and exchange it for a pleasure that is far inferior. And this brings us to our second C. The first C is creation. The second C is corruption. And here, we're just going a little bit further in Genesis. Genesis 3, verses 6 to 7. And then... 21 to 23. So Genesis 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Yahweh God made garments of skin, or skipping down a bit. Yahweh God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, Yahweh God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate, cultivate the ground from which he was taken. Now, before I say more about these verses specifically, there's some commentary in the New Testament about this event. You don't have to turn there, but listen to Romans 5:12 and also verses 18 and 19. Romans 5:12, verses 18 and verses 18 and 19. Paul writes, "Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men." Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So what's going on here in Genesis 3? When Adam ate the fruit, Adam and Eve, but chiefly Adam, his rebellion brought sin into the world and corrupted all of God's very good creation. Since Adam was the first human, the representative of all humans, all his descendants became sinners, rebels against God. And so as a result, all people, including you and me, all people became spiritually dead and subject to physical death as well. Now in Genesis 3, immediately after sinning, we see Adam and Eve trying to make coverings for themselves. It says they sowed leaves together. But God, however, determined that these coverings would not do for them. I mean, just imagine trying to walk around in leaves for clothing. This is not going to last very long. They're not going to do very much for you. And who knows just how, um, how well put together these, these fig leaves actually were. So God, observing this, he makes clothes for Adam and Eve for them from animal skins. Now, Though it's not stated explicitly in the Bible, God most likely killed an animal to make these clothes. Now, you could say, no, it didn't say he killed an animal. Yeah, that's true, but it would seem weird that he just creates an animal skin. He could have done that, but probably an animal was killed for these skins. This, then, would be the first death in the Bible. An animal was killed to provide for Adam and Eve. And here begins two principles that we see throughout the rest of the Bible. The first is, sin needs covering. This principle is symbolized by the nakedness that Adam and Eve feel. And we see this concept of nakedness and the need for covering going forward in the scriptures. Various Old Testament passages discuss 
God covering Israel's nakedness. Or during times of judgment, God will speak of exposing the nakedness of various wicked peoples, various nations. And in Revelation chapter 3, when Christ is speaking to the church at Laodicea, he urges them to accept clothing from them, clothing from him to clothe their nakedness. Now, these passages do not speak of literal nakedness, usually, but the shame and ugliness of one's sin. Now, again, nakedness in itself is not evil, but it is, it is used as a symbol, sometimes in the Bible, for the shame that comes with sin. And there is a connection that when we talk through the Genesis passages later, when we go through um, creation in the fall, we'll talk more about, but this is a symbol. As descendants of Adam, we need to have the shame of our sin covered and covered over by the right clothing. Only God can provide that. That's what we see in, in a small form in Genesis chapter 3. But we see the same thing as we go through the rest of the Bible. If we try to cover ourselves, we will be just as insufficiently clothed as Adam and Eve with their fig leaves. But by what means does God provide us this spiritual clothing. That's our second principle. And this is again going to be seen in the rest of the Bible. Sacrifice is needed to cover one's sins. It apparently took the death of an animal to provide the coverings for Adam and Eve after the fall. During the Passover, many times the law of Moses, we again see an innocent and unblemished animal was required to stay God's judgment against man and man's sin. Yet these sacrifices never end. The people continually sin in the Old Testament. The priests continually have to offer sacrifices. There's a need for an end to this, a, a, a completion, a, a once-for-all sacrifice to cover and remove all the sins of all of God's people. What people need is a once-for-all Savior. Now, someone might ask, before we go on to the next C, why did God let man fall into sin? Why, did God, why didn't God stop it if he's so loving? Well, again, part of the answer is God is the king. God's the creator. He has the right to do as he pleases. And whatever he does, he's told us is good and just. But part of what God has revealed to us in the scriptures is that redemption was always God's plan. It's not as if Adam and Eve fell and God said, oh, how could they? I, I, I just didn't know that this would happen. What do I do now? Nope. 1 Peter 1.20 says that Christ was foreknown as Redeemer since before the world was created. God had always determined that the fall would occur and that God would redeem those he chose from the race of Adam to be saved. God had always determined to display his glory through his special work of redemption. Therefore, the fall, like all tragedies or evil happenings in the world was actually, is actually, used for good. Now, we don't have a time now for a full discussion of the problem of evil, but this is part of the answer. God knows what he's doing, and what he's done is always for ultimate good. And that has to do with God displaying his own glory. But God doesn't just display his glory in redemption. He also displays his glory in anger and judgment against sin. And this is also what we see in the next C, catastrophe. Our third C is catastrophe. We've got creation, we've got corruption, and now catastrophe. For this, go to Genesis 6. Genesis 6, verses 5 to 8. And then Genesis 8, verses 15 to 17. Uh, Genesis 8, 1 and 15 to 17. But first, Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord, that is Yahweh, saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Yahweh was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. Going to chapter 8 now, chapter 8 verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. And now verse 15, chapter 8, verse 15. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you, 
Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. All right, so what's this all about? And what's the significance for the gospel? Well, after the sin of Adam and Eve, sin and sinners continued to increase on the earth. The wickedness became so great that God in his purity and holiness even though he's still loving and patient, he was compelled to judge mankind and destroy all that was on the earth through water. The flood then is an example of God's justice against sin and a picture of God's future judgment against sin. So it was, a, it was an example of judgment in the past and justice, and it's a picture of what is to come. Because consider what Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 17. Luke 17, verses 26 to 30. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read this one to you. Luke 17, 26 to 30. Jesus says, and just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. And it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It'll be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. As preached by Paul on Mars Hill in Acts 17, a day is coming when Jesus will judge the world in righteousness. For sinners in the line of Adam who transgress God's commands just as Adam, Adam did, this judgment will not be pretty. The shame of our nakedness, metaphorically, will be revealed to all and exposed before God. And this judgment culminates in what the Bible describes as the lake of fire or hell. As the New Testament tells us, hell is a place of continual burning and thirst. It's a place of continual darkness, crying, gnashing of teeth. A place where one is eaten by worms but never fully consumed is a place totally cut off from the kindness of God and filled with the wrath of God, and there is no way out of it ever. The writer of Hebrews says, when commenting on God's wrath and God's judgment, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So we see an example of this judgment in Noah and the flood. But why was Noah saved? Why wasn't he destroyed with the rest? Well, if we look back through the Genesis account, we are told that Noah was righteous. And therefore, he found favor with the Lord. But is this salvation by works? Did he work his way into God's favor? No, the context of the Bible shows that this was not by works, but by faith. It was his belief in God. God chose to extend favor to Noah on the basis of God's own kind character, and he gave Noah the faith to believe in God. We, we hear this explicitly explained in Hebrews 11.7. Hebrews 11.7, the writer tells us, By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Noah simply believed the promises of God. And included in that promise was that God would provide a saving substitute for Noah and really for all men who turn to God in the future. Now, there's one more piece of bad news before we get to the good news. We have one, one more C that fits in the bad news category, and that is confusion. Confusion, and this comes in Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9. Let's look at that one. Genesis 11, starting in verse 1. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Yahweh said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all the same language. And this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, 
so that they will not understand one another's speech. So Yahweh scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there Yahweh confused the language of the whole earth, and from there Yahweh scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, what is the significance of this event for the gospel? Well, first of all, note how thoroughly sinful man actually is. You'd think that after God destroyed nearly all of humanity with the flood, that mankind would have learned to honor God and not rebel. But only a couple of generations after Noah, we have man refusing to scatter throughout the earth and erecting a city and a tower to their own greatness. Just how wicked and foolish is the heart of man? Babel is, an utter, or is a reminder of the utter depravity of man's heart. The flood did not change man. God confuses man's language at Babel to prevent mankind from continuing in unified rebellion from God. It was a judgment, but also a mercy. The people did scatter and began to diversify in some ways. However, as we read on in the scriptures, we see that each people group still has the fundamental problem of sin. It doesn't matter if you're a Philistine, an American, a Viking, or a Jew. You all have the same problem. And you all need the same Savior. What's worse, because of man's rebellion at Babel and because of God's judgment, hatred and distrust are now manifest between whole people groups today all over the world. Even in our country, which we would like to think of as enlightened or more enlightened when it comes to individual relationships and relationships between people groups, we're still a land with lurking prejudices and racism. Other parts of the world are even more open in their hatred of other people groups with mob violence and wars and genocide, but these things appear here as well. And that all points back to these different elements of the bad news. Man has become a sinner, and now he continually sins. So with these first four C's, we have the bad news. So let's recap it in a way that is a brief pronunciation of the gospel. We have creation. God, as creator, created man in a very good creation, determined good laws for man to follow. And man, as God's created creature, has every reason to obey and worship his good God. But corruption. Adam rebelled against God's laws. He brought futility and suffering into the world, and worse, spiritual and physical death to all men, including you and I. Because of Adam, every person is born a rebel against God and continually transgresses God's good laws. We have a sinful heart and a sinful record. But there's even worse news because of catastrophe, because of man's wickedness. God had to destroy all men with a flood to repay them for their sin. And God will judge all people in a similar way in the future. Again, including you and I. And then confusion. Because of man's rebellion at Babel, the relationships between people groups has been permanently altered. But all the diverse people groups of the world have the same sin and judgment problem. Their inability to trust and live at peace with one another is just another symptom of man's unhealed but totally corrupted wicked heart. This is the bad news. This is an articulation of the bad news that people need to understand in order to be saved. They need to see just how much they and all mankind is left in a sorry state. And we could add more from the scriptures to emphasize these points. As the Bible unfolds, we see the law of Moses. We hear more of the commands of God. We see more of the character of God. Our situation only gets worse. In the law, in the Old Testament, we are forbid from lying. We are forbid from committing adultery. Not just in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we are forbid from committing adultery in our hearts from murdering others in our hearts, from covetousness, from all other forms of idolatry. And what person keeps these commands? What person can say that he's never lied or that he never hated another person, that he's done what God has called him to do? These are good laws. They are right. They are righteous, but we don't keep them. Indeed, when we're trying to show people the bad news, we ought to bring up the law of God, show them that, my friend, you do not meet God's standard. 
Why do you think you're going to get into heaven? Because you're good? Because you're more good than bad? Do you know the standard that God actually reveals in the Bible? Do you know his commands? You don't keep those commands. Neither do I. The standard that comes from God is God's own righteous nature, and it is perfection. Breaking one of those commandments counts as breaking the whole law, as James says in James 2.10. And all of man's righteous deeds are filthy rags before God. Isaiah 64.6. You can't work your way back into God's favor. Rather, you're even trying to work your way back into God's favor is an offense to him. The, the news just gets worse and worse. Without a substitute, we are left with only the fearful expectation of God's hot, angry, holy judgment. But praise God that the news does not end here. There is good news, and those come with our last three C's. The fifth C in our list, using this outline, is Christ. Our fifth C is Christ. And now we're going to the New Testament. Take your Bibles, go to John chapter 1. John 1, verses 14 to 17. All right. Here we go. Starting verse 14. John writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. A Savior, the Savior that everyone needed since Old Testament times, since Adam and Eve, came into the world. And indeed, there were constant foretellings of his coming into the world throughout the Old Testament. If we even think of Genesis 3.15, we have the first articulation of this hope. In the midst of God's curses on man and the serpent for the fall, we hear in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. God prophesied to the serpent, you will be defeated by one from the line of the woman. God had given hope to Adam and Eve in their coming seed, someone who would gain final victory over the deceiver, the one who led them into sin and death. And this Savior would be one like Noah, who would bring his family safely through the flood of God's judgment, as Peter alludes in 1 Peter 3, 20-22. This Savior would be the one who gathered into one fold, not just the sheep of Israel, but also the sheep from other folds, other people groups, people of every tribe, tongue, and nation, people who could not be brought to peace with one another or with God in any other way, just as Ephesians 2.14 describes. Jesus would be the seed of Abraham through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. He would be the descendant of David who would reign forever in righteousness, and he would fulfill all the specific foretellings of the Old Testament prophets as they talked about the one, the Messiah, who is to come. You can see that Jesus is really reversing the things we hear in the bad news. As the prophets foretold, Jesus would be born of a virgin in Bethlehem, which is exactly what happened. He came to suffer on behalf of his people, to supply the covering that they needed for their nakedness, to bear in his body and soul the infinitely un the infinitely, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I want to say hot anger, but I feel like that doesn't quite describe it. That just the unspeakably vast and overwhelming wrath of God. He was going to bear that all in himself. Christ came into the world as God in the flesh. And he lived a perfect, happy, obedient life before the Father. He succeeded where Adam failed. And he acts as a new Adam. That those in Christ would have Jesus as their head and representative, no longer Adam, and therefore be set free from the curse of sin given through Adam. But this freedom required sacrifice, and that's our sixth C. We have Christ and then the cross, the cross. Go over to 2 Corinthians 5.21. We get a good, articula good articulation of what happened at the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21. 
There it is. Second Corinthians 5.21. He, that's God, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In addition to Jesus' sinless life, Jesus willingly offered himself as a perfect sacrifice on the cross. God poured out his infinite wrath, normally typified in hell, on the Son, on his beloved Son on the cross. Only the God-man could endure such wrath. He had to be made man to be our substitute, but he had to be the infinite God to be able to bear the infinite wrath, the infinite penalty of sin to completion. And understand, of course, that Jesus' suffering was more than physical pain. It wasn't just the agony of the nails or the crown of thorns or the beatings. It was, most of all, the inhibiting of the sweet fellowship that the Son had always known with the Father from all eternity. And the receiving and the drinking down of the cup of God's holy wrath to the dregs. All of that anger poured out into the very soul of Christ. The Christ completed it. He drank the cup of wrath so that there was nothing left. And for this reason, he was able to say on the cross, it is finished. Before he gave up his spirit and died. The son of God, Jesus, died on the cross. But to demonstrate that his sacrifice was accepted by the father and that he had conquered sin and death for all who believe in him. Jesus rose bodily from the grave on the third day. He rose from the grave. He then appeared to his disciples. He appeared to 500 eyewitnesses even at one time before ascending to heaven and again taking his place at the right hand of the Father. So we have Christ. We have the cross. And this is good news. But then there's one other piece of good news, and that's the seventh C, the consummation, the, the fulfilling of all things. They're coming together. And for this, we go to Revelation. We can't summarize all the consummation in one verse, but we can see part of it in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 8. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 8. This is the Apostle John describing the final state after the end of history, the new heaven and the new earth. Listen to what he says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. In the consummation, Jesus is coming again to judge the world and to rule in righteousness. God will fully redeem his creation in the millennial kingdom before creating a new heaven and a new earth in which God dwells with man eternally. Those that belong to Christ will be there to enjoy him forever. But those who do not belong to God, they are instead tormented forever in the lake of fire. So to summarize the good news with these last three seats, to articulate the gospel with these good news, we have Christ. God sent his son to be the long-awaited substitute for mankind's sin. The son of God took on humanity and lived a perfectly righteous life. But there's the cross. The son then suffered God's full wrath against sin on the cross. He died. He was buried, but he rose again the third day. 
by conquering sin and death in this way. Jesus paid once and for all for all the sins of those who believe in him, and he gave them his perfect righteousness. And there is the consummation. Jesus will come back someday soon in the future to finally judge the earth, to cast into eternal fire those who do not believe in him, and to dwell eternally with those who do believe in him. Now, I keep mentioning believe. What does it mean to believe? Or how does one make the transfer from being in Adam to being in Jesus? Well, listen to what Jesus said. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus calls on all men to repent and believe the gospel. Repent, repentance and belief are just two sides of the same coin. To repent means you change your mind in such a way that it results in a change of action. So when you repent in a saving way, you stop believing Satan, yourself, the flesh, whatever scheme or whatever lie that you've trusted in, and you turn to God, giving up your old way so that you can embrace God's way. That's why we often talk about repentance as being that 180-degree turn. That's what it is, but it happens in the mind. And then it shows up in the actions. To believe is just the positive side of that. It is to embrace the good news of the gospel as true. When you believe, you basically those seven C's, those things you've articulated, you say, that's true. And I'm going to live my life in accord with that. You trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You embark on a life of faith in which you love the Lord, you want to know his will, and you seek to do it. For a person to be saved, the Bible says, amazingly, all he must do is repent and believe this message. Believe the message about Christ articulated in the Bible. Man doesn't need to do any works. He doesn't need to go through any rituals. He doesn't even have to pray a prayer. All he needs to do is repent and believe in Christ. Stop trusting a lie. Embrace the truth. John 3.16 says, you know that verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, just believes in him, shall not perish but have eternal life. Now that we have the context of the scriptures, that statement is much more well explained. This is why we say salvation is by faith alone, just as Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says. Again, you might know this verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may, may boast. So salvation is just by faith. And repentance is just a, the other side of the coin when it comes to faith. But true faith is never alone. If you really repent and believe, you cannot help but act differently in your life. You start to follow Jesus. And for this reason, James is able to say, James 2.17, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. What? I thought salvation is by faith alone. Well, it is. But someone who truly believes in Christ will seek to obey Jesus. And therefore, he will manifest the fruits of the Spirit as the Spirit comes to indwell him. And he will persevere through the suffering that comes with being a Christian. Again, it's not the works that save you, but they are fruit of true salvation. Jesus says in Luke 9.23, and this is a very good verse to bring up in a Gospel explanation, Luke 9, 23. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. But this is it. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Good because of how it responds to the bad news. God has accomplished for needy man everything that man needed. If man will truly believe, if any person will truly believe, that person will be saved and enjoy eternal life with God forever. He will not come under the wrath of God. He will no longer be in bondage to his sins, but he will know God. And all this is accomplished so that God might show himself to be the great and glorious God that he is, and that God's redeemed might enjoy that glory. This is the gospel, articulated according to the seven seeds. So, What's the application? How should we respond to it? 
or what things can we say in this lesson for those who believe and for those who do not believe? Well, I've got a couple questions to think through. First, is the seven seas the only way to declare the gospel? No, of course not. I said it at the beginning, but I want to reemphasize that. This is not the only way that you can explain the Bible's message, but it is one way that you can use. There are certain things you're always going to have to say in a gospel proclamation. This is useful because if you know the Bible, if you know the general outline of the Bible, you explain that. I mean, really, the Bible does unfold in a way that shows the bad news and then the good news. And so it is a useful way. But you might know another way or, or hear another specific articulation, maybe using verses in Romans, maybe specific categories. For my apologetics and evangelism class, we we memorized a, a gospel proclamation method that just focuses on four topics or four questions. And really, these have to be in any gospel proclamation. Who is God? Who is man? Who is Jesus? And what is man's necessary response to Jesus? You've got to adequately explain each of those four elements of the gospel. And these are the things that if we look at how the gospel is explained in the scriptures, for example, if you go to the book of Acts and look at the way that Peter or Paul preached to the Jews and the Gentiles, they are explaining these elements. Remind people who God is that, and the obligation that man has to God, how man has sinned against God, the judgment that is coming on man because of that. Jesus as the propitiation for that sin, the one who's going to save man from the sin and God's wrath. But man's necessary response, which is repentance and faith. If we explain these elements, it doesn't matter if we use the seven C's or another, another system. It's the content that's the most important, not necessarily the specific outline. But again, seven C's is one way that is useful. Here's another question, and I, I want to hear your response to this. Why do Christians want to sh sometimes want to share the good news without sharing the bad news? What do you think? Yeah, I think, Don, I see your hand. Or, yeah, go ahead. Right. So I think, I think you've hit it there, just to reiterate what you said. People don't like to hear bad news. They especially don't like to hear the bad news of the gospel. We don't want to offend them. We don't want their negative response. And so we'd rather just say the good news. But I think you can see this is, this is an um, unacceptable thing for us to do because it's only when somebody understands the bad news that they can appreciate the good news. If we just say the good news, we might get some responses, but we won't see true repentance and faith. Besides, that's not the example we see in the Bible. And Jesus and others are speaking with unbelievers and speaking to them about salvation. They confront sin. They say, listen, friend, you've got to understand, we are all sinners, including you, and you are not safe from the wrath of God. I love you, friend, brother, sister, family member, but it's because I love you. I've got to tell you this bad news. There's good news. I want to tell you the good news, but you've got to understand the bad news first. Well, we're going to be, we've got to understand, we're going to be tempted to minimize or get rid of the bad news because that will be more palatable to people. But this is how we exhibit trust in God. It's the foolishness of preaching. It's the foolishness of the message preached that's going to see people saved as the spirit works in that person's heart. Now, I've mentioned the elements that need to be part of a, an adequate explanation of the gospel. This doesn't mean that every time that you're speaking with somebody about God, you have to say every one of those four things. I mean, sometimes people just don't have the time. They're like, okay, you know, we can continue this conversation another time. Or maybe you articulate one element and then the next time you get you try and move on to the others, but you, you do want to hit each one of those points. And that has relevance for this next question. What constitutes a false gospel? We're warned in the Bible against false gospels, different gospels. What makes a gospel, a message, a false one or a wrong one? I think the answer is actually pretty simple. It's where the message substantially deviates on those four topics. Who is God? Who is man? Who is Christ? And what is man's necessary response? And we can see this in some very obvious heresies in our world. Arianism, that would be 
typified in Jehovah's Witnesses, it has a different God and a different Christ because Jesus is a created being or Jesus is just some angel. That's not what the Bible says. That's not who Jesus is. And so that's a different gospel. Roman Catholicism has the same God, has the same Christ, at least in most respects, but it's a very different response called for. There's supposed to be works and faith in order to save a person. That's a false gospel. Easy believism. That is, uh, just pray this prayer. Just invite Jesus into your heart. That's it. Don't even think about anything else. It doesn't matter how you live after that. Well, it's same God, same Christ. But again, a very different response to what the Bible calls for. This is not true faith. This is shallow faith. This is false faith, sham faith, as Calvin would say. And there's no repentance mentioned. There's no change of mind that results in a change of action. Again, it's not the works that save, but there's going to be food of repentance. So easy believism, that is a false gospel. Or if you go to Mormonism, well, that just hits all the boxes. Different God, different Christ, different understanding of man, and a different response called for. I mean, it is, it is really out there. You know, I heard a, a surprising, this is just a little tidbit, but I listened to a, a something from James White the other day, and he, he said something surprising. He said, Islam is closer to Christianity than Mormonism is. And that's a true statement. Many, these are, these are those central elements that when you deviate, when you get the fundamentals wrong in these areas, you've got a false gospel. But a lot of these false gospels, they spawn from a compromised understanding of scripture. And this is something we've already seen over the past lessons. If scripture is denied, altered or added to you usually get a false gospel because that's what man wants to do he wants to change scripture so that he can make it the gospel something different so when someone denies that the bible is god's word or if somebody adds his revelation to god's word that is a very bad sign i don't know if i would say that that automatically makes a heresy maybe it does but certainly it's a very very bad sign Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So how can a person come to saving faith if you compromise that word? The ultimate question, of course, is, in all of this, do you believe the true gospel? Now, I trust that many of you, hopefully all of you do who are listening today, but I know the deceitfulness of sin. This message is wonderful news of what God has accomplished in his love. But are you a true beneficiary of it? What, what might keep you from repenting and believing this news? What keeps you from following Christ and becoming a co-inheritor with him in the kingdom that is to come? Is there a passing treasure of the world that you cling to? Is there some cherished sin habit that you don't want to let go of? Is the thought of persecution too much for you? And you say, I, I just can't. I can't do that. Are you believing in some other gospel that's more palatable to your sinful heart? You listen to what you heard today and you say, eh, you know, I subscribe to most of that, but I think I'm pretty good. Or I think everybody's going to be saved. Or I think that there, there are many gods. Um, that may be more palatable. That may be more popular, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible is true. But it is always a worthy exchange when you come to Christ. When you repent and believe, consider what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3.8. Philippians 3.8, Paul says, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, trash, so that I may gain Christ. Anything in this world is rubbish compared to just gaining Christ. And Jesus says in Mark 8, 36, Mark 8, 36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? All right, we have a couple of minutes left. Any comments or questions on what I've shared with you today? Yeah, Steve. Mm. Mm.
Yeah. Amen. That's great, Steve. I'll just repeat that a little bit. Uh, you were saying an evangelist, you know, I have definitely heard that also from, from different sources, but there's basically only two religions in the world. There's the biblical, the true God, God-based religion and everything that man and the demons come up with. And biblical religion, the, the truth is that salvation is done. And the false religion is that you've got to do to earn your salvation. And I think that's actually in itself a, a little bit of an apologetic for Christianity. You say, look, this is, this is unique among everything that uh, exists in the world. And there's a reason for that. It's because it's true. And it's the thing that man would never come up with because he loves himself and he loves his sin. God says, no, turn away from yourself and turn to me and you'll be saved. I have done it all for my own. If you're one of my own, everything is already done for you. So repent and believe. Uh, Danny, I saw your hand go up. Did you want to say something? Okay. Say that last part again. Right. Okay, I got you. Any other questions or comments? One thing I don't, I haven't talked about in this lesson is how, how do you initiate a gospel conversation? And there's no one way to do that. Uh, you can share the gospel. You can give the gospel to people you don't know very well or people you just met. I and mean, you can also give the gospel to people that you do know well. And there are different challenges in each, but you can simply create the opportunity. You can simply say, hey, my friend, I'd, I'd love to share with you the good news. Is it okay if I do that? Or you might say to someone you know well, hey, I've known you for a long time. You know that I really love you, but there's something that I know is, uh, is true about you that, that is, is really concerning to me. And, and I, want to, I want to see you freed from it. I want to share with you the good news of the Bible. You don't have to use those specific lines, but you, you can start that conversation that way. Or you can just make a comment as, as you're just going through life with those people around you. You can make a comment about life from the perspective of the Bible. You might say, oh, you know, this election or like these people or I can't believe how, you know, how, how, how wicked that person was. And you say, oh, you know what? You're so right. That is so evil. But did you know that the Bible says that that's the way we all are, despite what we show on the outside? Or someone says, oh, it's such a nice day today. And you say, yeah, you're so right. This is the grace of God to us. And we don't even deserve it. Now, again, they might, they might think you're a little bit weird for saying that, or they might not pursue the conversation, but it's a way to see if they're willing to talk, if they're willing to hear, if you can give the message that's going to save them from sin, from death, from eternal death. Of course, all of it has to be uh, under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit. You can't force someone to be saved. You can't make them saved. You can't come up with a persuasive argument that's just going to surefire get them saved. It has to be the Lord working in the heart, but he does use us as means. We are the ordained means. We've got to share the message. We've got to give the message. And that message, as we've seen today, includes both the bad news and the good news. We are called as God's ambassadors. We are called as God's followers to give that message. So may God enable us. May God lead us to do that. That's all we have time for today. If you have other questions about what we talked about, definitely email me. Next week, I'm going to be doing something a little special. I'm actually not going to be with you next week. I'm going on a retreat with my fellowship group here at Grace Community Church. So uh, we have uh, Caleb, Caleb Dagnall, to um, do a special lesson with you um, that's going to review many of the things we've looked at in this first unit. And then after that, in the following uh, week, then I'll be back with you, our following time. Okay, so let me close in a word of prayer. Oh God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you. Lord, none of this, none of your great compassion, none of your redemptive plan was deserved by us. We do nothing to, to be saved. It is all of you. But we thank you for it, God. You do dis display your justice, your righteousness, but also your mercy. And thank you for Thank you for pouring it out to the undeserving, even us. Oh God, how can we ever, ever thank you? How can, in an appropriate way. But Lord, we love you. We love you for what you've done. So cause us, God, to be able to share this message with others, to be bold, to be obedient in this way. 
so that they too can be saved. Lord, we pray that you would work in the hearts of the people we know, the people around us, the people we meet, so that they would be moved to hear it, to consider it, to repent and believe. You have to do the work. But God, you use us. So use us. And love us not to be afraid. It is always going to be a battle. It's always like that nervousness of, of going off a high dive or going onto the battlefield. But the victory is yours. What can man do to us when you're on our side? We praise you for that, God. I pray that you bless the rest of the service at Calvary today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you all. See you again soon.